This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Ever felt that there's a certain thinness to contemporary public life? For decades now, trade unions, political parties, churches, voluntary organisations of all kinds have been in decline. And for decades, many on the radical left, whose political project depends so heavily on mass democratic life and on the self-organisation of the working class, have buried their heads in the sand on this problem. Anton Jaeger recently wrote a fascinating article for Jacobin magazine, exploring a key text which sought to address this phenomenon 20 years ago and its relevance for the contemporary period. This is the first part of our conversation. For subscribers at our Patreon, at patreon forward slash Scott, we delve a little more deeply into the question of why we are all still bowling alone. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. I'm joined today by Anton Jaeger, researcher at the University of Leuven, who recently wrote an article for Jacobin on Bowling Alone, a book that came over, we think, uh, a little over two decades ago, and which was enormously influential in academic sociological literature, and which I think the left uh, has never really successfully challenged its thesis, though uh, it would have an inducement to do so. The thesis of Bowling Alone, which Anton will be able to explain a lot better than me in a second, is basically that forms of organic social organisation in civil society have been in decline for decades, and it's an investigation into the potential causes of that phenomenon and analysis of that phenomenon. But as I say, I think it poses a very serious challenge to everyone on the socialist left who naturally believes in a mass democratic challenge to capitalism, the necessity of the self-organisation of the working class in that process. And the Anton's article um, looks at the thesis 20 years on uh, and broadly, I, I think, quite successfully defends it in the contemporary political juncture. Anton, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. No, thank you to you. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, could you just lay out basically what the thesis in Bowling Alone is, what argument it makes about contemporary capitalist society? So the book is, as you said, two decades old. So I don't think it is quite as pertinent or as contemporaneous as it was 20 years ago. It's very much a product of the late 1990s and early 2000s, in which there was a broader literature that was worried about the decline of social mores and sociability. It relates to certain crime panics in the 1990s as well. But the general thesis of the book is pretty self-explanatory when you look at the title, namely Bowling Alone, in that he opens the book with a very quotidian observation in which he looks at bowling league statistics and a strange divergence within those tables in which bowling leagues or bowling clubs where people go bowling together in groups, um, so socially and collectively, were on a secular decline in the last decades of the 20th century. But on the other hand, another part of the table indicated that more and more people actually did go and attend bowling alleys. So attendance at bowling alleys increased, but actual group competition and club playing 
decreased. And then his question was, what explained this divergence? What was the sort of paradoxical coincidence between these two trends? And his response, which he found from the data, is that what you saw was a rise in bowling alone rather than bowling together. So more and more people went bowling, but fewer people actually did it in a club context and were basically lonely bowlers. And from that continuing observation, he extrapolates towards a lot of kinds of fields of society, whether we're talking about parties, we're talking about unions, we're talking about neighborhood clubs, we're talking about religious associations, and he uses it as a prism to discuss a more general and secular, uh, sorry, secular crisis of civil society at the close of the 20th century. So the statistical apparatus he mobilizes for this is quite broad, and some of the findings are quite shocking. But he basically shows that there has been this really massive unilateral decline in all types of association at the close of the 20th century that is not just an exclusively American phenomenon, but also a Western, even a global phenomenon. And then he looks at a variety of causes and examines some counterfactuals as to what might be driving it. Um, so I just want to finish with saying that it's not a very good book in the sense that it's not stylistically very pleasant to read. And it uses a lot of very dubious social scientific concepts like social capital, for example. But as I was rereading it, I was struck that so many of the trends, firstly, which he discusses, have become even worse. So in that sense, it's sadly contemporaneous and relevant in that he was only seeing the beginning of the decline we're now seeing in full force. And secondly, the essential thesis has held up. So the trend he observed was real. It's even realer now. And that means I think it still deserves a reckoning. Yeah, I mean, as I remember the book, I mean, I remember reading it um, years and years ago at university and immediately recognising that it represented a serious challenge to um, a sort of traditional Marxian socialist strategic view of how the working class can transform society. But it's not itself, of course, a book that trades in Marxist categories. Uh, and as you say, it relies on a kind of more academic sociological framework with some sort of weak components it also as i recall and i should say it's been a long time since i read anything from the book but as i recall it came up with what i thought was some quite superficial claims about what was causing all of this um so there was there were general nods towards the growth of sort of consumer society communication technologies feel free to um uh, to to counteract what I'm saying if it's if it's not correct, but generally in the literature around this book, because as you say, it's it's not a singular event. There's been a sort of steady growth in claims of this kind that um, collective organization, not just of of a political kind, but of basically any kind, has been in decline in uh, in societies around the world for a long time. Um, quite often, you find in that literature. Um, it's, again, like I say, it points to uh, not so much class relations as um, secondary aspects of the developing kind of modern capitalism. So the growth of consumer society and perhaps the growth of social liberalism uh, and so on. Um, have there been any, uh, has anyone approached this argument and tried to bring um, a class lens to it, try to explain these developments by um, changes in class relations more widely in society. You point to one or two in your article, um, but is there is there a tradition of trying to meet this debate on Marxist terms? 
several things to remark on the original book firstly um as you say the sociology of it is actually fairly flat it's not as if it's a really vulgar rational choice approach to how society functions but it trades in categories such as social capital or notions of civil society which are relatively undifferentiated which don't allow for an actual class perspective on how civil society itself is uh, structured so there's also no elite sociology and there's a fairly weak sense of what types of policy choices or political developments actually drove the landscape he's currently looking at so in that sense the book is not to be recommended or is to be taken with a grain of salt insofar as you won't actually find the machinery or the apparatus of Marxist concept which will give you a proper causal theory of what is causing our world of lonely bowlers at the same time where I think the book is particularly interesting and where I think it differs positively with some of the crises of for example party democracy literature we know from the 2010s such as Peter Mayer is that it doesn't just talk about political parties as an institution which have suffered from this downsizing or this reduction in civic activity. So Peter Mayer, who I think is much more Marxist than Robert Putnam would ever be himself, has a story about how there's a void between citizens and elites that opens up in the late 20th century and that continues in the 21st century. But his is very much a story about party decline and how parties have given up this mediating function. But what I always felt when I read Mayer is that this story needs to be expanded and be told about the entire of society and how these intermediary bodies have declined and sadly one of the few people that gives you this is Robert Putnam even when he lacks some of the more sophisticated and rigorous tools that Mayer had access to and many of the Marxist responses in the early 2000s to Robert D. Putnam were basically objections to what you could call civil society romanticism or the idea that civil society was this bulwark of liberalism that could stop certain forms of atomization and therefore prop up a liberal and tolerant society. And when you look at history in the 20th century, of course, and many scholars of fascism has also noted this, there's no reason to be romantic about what civil society could accomplish politically. I mean, the Nazis and many fascist movements had a very strong civil society as well. So in that sense, Robert Putman's liberal optimism was not warranted. At the same time, I think many of these Marxist objections didn't actually go to the core of his observation, which is what actually caused this transversal decline in intermediary bodies or in civic activity at the close of the 20th century. What was a convincing explanation of what made it happen? And there, I think the Marxist critique fell short because there was a good sense that leftist organization was in decline. And often the explanation given for that was just neoliberalism or capital's counter-offensive in the 1980s and 1990s. In Britain, this was dramatically exemplified by Thatcher and, of course, Reagan in the US. But there was no real explanation for why a similar process actually also took part on the right. And it's not just left-wing organizations that declined, but even on the right, you saw a very steep fall in civic association and in associational density. And that means that Putnam's observation was correct. He didn't have the right explanation for it, but he was onto something. And Marxists didn't actually think seriously about what that would have meant. Yeah, I mean, to make it concrete for people who are maybe guessing at what we mean by civil society, I mean, I think on the left, we're perhaps principally talking about political parties and trade unions perhaps trade unions above all, um, of course, most 
countries around the world have seen a gigantic collapse in trade union density in industries and membership of trade union organizations. In Europe in particular, there's also been an extreme hollowing out of social democratic parties, which were hugely important, particularly in a European context, for fostering what might more broadly be described as civil society. And as you say, Peter Mayer's ruling the void, I think, sort of pays close attention to that. But beyond that, there's a world of civic institutions which have um, hollowed out and crumbled uh, uh, over recent decades. Another important example would be churches. Church attendance has also completely collapsed. I mean, in some countries more than others. Robert Putnam, of course, is writing from a US perspective. But uh, in Scotland, uh, when I'm recording this, Scotland went from a very religious society in the immediate post-World War II years uh, to today where Scotland is one of the most secular and atheistic countries in the world um, and church attendance has collapsed to almost nothing, uh, leaving the landscape littered with beautiful buildings that uh, sadly are now being demolished uh, and so on. So there's a, there's a real... You can almost look across the cityscape in Scotland and see the physical legacy uh, of... Um, you know the the collapse of of civil society, um, but you know when when I first came across this literature, the only explanations I'd really had on the left for the decline of those mass forms of working class politics, particularly the trade unions, was that the working class had experienced a crisis of confidence following the defeats at the hands of you know the kind of neoliberal shock troops like Reagan and Thatcher. Um, which I always thought was a curiously thin and um, sort of weakly psychological explanation for uh, the retreat of working class politics, working class self-organisation in particular in recent decades. And it often came from quarters where people were traditionally resistant to the insertion of psychological explanations into anything. I'd say by this point, there's no way to sustain this argument. There's no way to sustain the argument that all that's wrong is that working class people have some kind of memory of the defeats of the 1970s and 1980s uh, and in other European countries 1990s and um, are afraid to return to the field of battle. It seems quite obvious today that something more profound has changed um, and that there are um, deeper structural problems for the reorganization uh, of the working class into effective forms of industrial and political collectivity. I mean, have you, is there, is there anyone, <laughs> I mean, what I, what I did after I read your article, and it kind of awakens these memories of these sort of anxieties that the debate gave me years ago, I went and searched sort of the sorts of people you might expect to have taken on these arguments to find that no one's touched the literature. Um, there's a great, there seems to be a great disinterest in it, and I was very surprised by that. I think there is a great disinterest, uh, despite the fact there's an acute awareness of this organization. I think you're absolutely right that the first resort is to psychologization or to explain it as an essentially ideological operation that the crisis of confidence or the defeatism, which was ingrained by the neoliberal 
episode in the working class makes it difficult for these types of organizations to be resurrected. Um, and as we saw with the Brexit vote or the populist 2010s, I don't think that quite holds. I think there's an appetite for rebellion, which is very real, but which can only be expressed in certain ways that don't look for the organizational route. And I think it's more a question of resignation rather than active ideological manipulation, which is keeping so many of these organizations from reawakening themselves. Um, but again, I think the key question to ask is, it's not just about neoliberalism destroying working class civil society or wiping away those working class institutions. There's been an equally precipitous decline on the right. I think the Tory party in Britain is a very extreme example of this, for which we shouldn't forget that it was the first mass party in history. Um, even before the German Social Democratic Party started pushing for suffrage and became the most powerful socialist party in the world, the Tories had already built this massive electoral machine, which was basically to render mass democracy safe for capitalism. So to make sure that every single working class person in Britain who got the vote would vote Tory. And therefore you had the Primrose League, you would have all these Tory neighborhood clubs. And even those in the 1980s and 1980s, 1990s, as Thatcher was wrecking the unions and detonating the base of the Labour Party, also went into a steep decline. And then to me, the question is, what did neoliberalism actually do when it also nuked or did a controlled demolition of its own base. That's a very curious story, which can't just be explained through this leftist lens. And I think I've settled on a variety of explanations here, which explain the broader and not just exclusively left-wing decline of civil society. The first is just an economic explanation that with the drop in growth rates in the 1970s, there's fewer money to go around. And financing or propping up civil society just requires certain amounts of funds. People need to have money in their pockets and high wages to be able to pay their dues. And once these dues become smaller due to dropping growth rates, it actually becomes more difficult to finance civil society. You see this very clearly in the United States where you had the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which was also heavily reliant, of course, on its labor wing or the labor movement that was willing to push for civil rights. And once the issue of industrial overcapacity and the oil shock kicks in, many of these organizations just lose funds and they can't just resort to the state for funds. And therefore, the only organization that survive are conservative ones or elite foundations. And therefore, civil society just enters into a crisis once economic growth sl slows down. So there's a negative correlation between um, economic growth or sorry, slower economic growth and civil society activity. At the same time, that can't be the only explanation because what happens in the 1970s and 1980s, I think, is that capital tries to find a solution for this slacking growth problem. And its response, of course, as we know, which also characterized neoliberalism very heavily, is to break out of that post-war compact. So to initiate a counteroffensive on labor, to destroy unions, and thereby restore profit rates and make sure that you do so by cutting the wage rate. So that is a massive incentive for already, um, oh, sorry, for destroying or for weakening already weakened civil society institutions even further so you can restore your profit margins. Now, that is the neoliberal story, which we're very familiar with. So you have one 
uh, factor which makes civil society weaker on the left, which is lower economic growth. Then you have the neoliberal counteroffensive. But what happens during the neoliberal counteroffensive is not just that unions are destroyed, but that the marketization which is inflicted on society also means a controlled demolition of a right-wing civil society. And you see this very clearly with Thatcher when she opens up British markets to American competitors, that this means a very careful marginalization of so many key Tory voters. So if you sell off all these uh, local British banks or all these uh, gentry institutions to American competitors and privatize the hell out of them, that's also going to make your own civil society much weaker. The calculus on the right, though, certainly within the Tory parties to say, this is what capital is demanding. It's not just demanding an attack on the unions, but demanding us to nuke our own base. But they also have enough money available to make us pay for public relations. So we don't have to have a mass base on which we can rely. We can just pay Saatchi and Saatchi and help them or let them help us win elections. And that shouldn't be that much of an issue. So the idea is we're critically weak on our opponents, both in the Labour Party and in the unions, and we'll do a controlled demolition of our own base, but we can compensate um, for that problem with uh, new ways of finding funding, whether it's at corporations or whether it's through forms of PR. And I think that's the broader story how not just the left, but also the right does a very, I say, a carefully controlled disorganization of its own base in the 1980s and 1990s. And that really is a social landscape of post-politics in the 2000s, which then ends in the 2010s. Uh, so that is the most convincing story I have for it. I don't think I've achieved the full synthesis between the Marxist and the Putin view. I, um, I, I've been thinking about this uh, a lot in conjunction with, um, I don't know if you've read it, um, Vivek Chibber's recent book, The Class Matrix. In the yeah, final, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in the final chapter of that, he offers... Um, uh, an outline of the kind of new field of battle, as it were, in trade union and, and wider working class organising might look like in the, in the new situation. One of the features he identifies on that landscape is um, that uh, manufacturing has declined as a proportion, not just of national industries in the old Western heartlands, but on a global level. So there's been a dispersion of Kind of traditional manufacturing type industry around the world, but simultaneously changes in technique and technology uh, have meant that in every country where that operates, it's a relatively small part of the of the workforce. I'm, I'm sort of very rapidly summing up this attitude. He points out that in the 20th century, in the first half of the 20s, in the in the late 19th century, in the first half of the 20th century, <clears throat> working class politics really emerges. From this, from an older formation of the uh, of the working class, very much organised around, you know, traditional manufacturing industry, heavy industry, and and so on, and the types of working class organisation, both in the workplace and in uh, wider communities, that engender a certain type of <clears throat> mass trade union, mass social democratic uh, politics, and then of course, though he doesn't talk about it so much. Uh, later in the in the first half of the 20th century, you know, mass communist parties and so forth. And it's obviously, it's this working class, uh, though a small part of the Russian Empire at the time that led the Russian Revolution and so on. Um, so he, 
he makes what I think is a very valid insight into, into this situation. I was just wondering if you think that that change in the makeup of the, of the working class, and in particular, the decline of um, huge workplaces, uh, I mean, the average workplace, I think, in Britain today, this is probably an old statistic, but I'm sure I've heard it's the average workplace in Britain today employs 12 people or something like that. And that under those circumstances where you have a kind of service economy um, and mostly smaller workforces, perhaps a higher degree of part-time work, flexible work, agency work, and so on, uh, it's just structurally, it's just difficult to reconstruct um kind of mass workers type organizations. I mean, is that, because I know you've said it's not just a story of the decline of the left's uh, collective organization. This is going on on the right as well. But is that is that part of an explanation here as well, do you think? Oh, it definitely is a massive part of the story. Yes. Um, and again, I haven't fully figured it out, but I think Vivek gives us some very valuable clues in the conclusion to that book about how we might conceptualize the economic foundations of a certain type of politics. And so I don't want to call mass politics industrial politics, but I do think there's a very intimate and close relationship between the form of industrial society and the type of mass society or sort of grouped individuals it creates or socialized individuals and how that stimulates a certain type of politics. I don't think we should be either voluntaristic or deterministic about this. Um, it's not as if the presence of industry is in itself enough to generate mass politics. Um, but I do think there are certain enabling factors or certain controlling factors which are very important when we look at the connection between industry and mass politics and how, for example, deindustrialization and disorganization go hand in hand. Um, the first is just simply the fact of deindividualization or the social character of labor. Uh, when you look at these factories, both in the late 19th century and certainly in the 20th century, um, you have these institutions with massive groups of workers who not only work together, but who are also intrinsically inter interdependent on each other. Um, all the workers in a factory have to rely on each other very directly. If someone makes a mistake, this might have potentially lethal consequences for some of your co-workers. So by sheer economic necessity, this already creates a social bond, which of course is very amenable to certain forms of solidarity, because you have to be solidaristic within the factory. It's very likely that you'll also be solidaristic outside of the factory. Um, so it's not an individualistic form of labor, it's an intrinsically social form of labor, and it comes with an economic interdependence that can then stimulate um, a form of political interdependence. With the disappearance of those large workplaces and a smaller, more atomized, or we could say sort of archipelago of smaller service workshops, it's very likely that people's experience of labor becomes more individualized, and that means their vision of politics also becomes more individualized. Um, this also holds for the types of military discipline, which created a very stratified and rigid proletariat, which I think Marx and Engels were actually duly optimistic about because they say, well, if the proletariat is trained like an army in the factory, it can easily train itself as an army outside of the factory and then do a military assault on the state. And I think with all the innovations in management technique across the 20th century, and certainly after the war, it's very likely that we're not looking at the same proletariat itself. So once again, we should not be deterministic about it. It's not as if industrialism automatically gives you mass politics, but obviously when you look at it, there's a very close enabling connection between the two. 
Another factor which Vivek talks about, and which I think is very important, is that it's not just about the types of workplaces, but also where the people who work in those workplaces live. And there he talks about an epical change, which is not just American, but happens across the West, namely the shift from these urban agglomerations in which you have neighborhoods that basically spawn next to factories, which have a very close and knit sense of community, which group workers together, not just in the factory, but also in these uh, slums or in these working class neighborhoods, it's obvious how you can do party work on that basis. Now, what happens in the 1960s and 1970s, mainly uh, starting the US and then spreading to other Western countries, is that you have a deliberate attempt to create a homeowning proletariat. So to make sure that workers don't rent their houses anymore, but become uh, asset owners or become people who have a mortgage that they need to pay off and therefore become independent owners of a home. While at the same time, you see the rise of suburbanization rather than urbanization, which disperses and atomizes a previous proletariat across these vast uh, extra urban sprawls, which of course don't have the same sites of sociability and don't have the same cafes and clubs that once existed in these factory neighborhoods. So once you have a spatial reorganization of the working class, it's also very likely that few of these people will find themselves in the same political institutions. So the first is just, what does the factory look like? The second question is, what does the neighborhood look like? And then it's obvious that we live in a society in which those types of mass socialist parties are much more difficult to form. I'm not saying they're impossible to form, but obviously the enabling factors have become a lot weaker. At the same time, when we know that there are about 12 people who on average work in a British workplace, that has its own precedence in British history. So the Chartist movement, we should remember, was not a product itself necessarily of mass industrial organization. It did have factory workers, but many of the workers who were Chartist uh, came from so-called putting out or small workshops. And nonetheless, Chartism managed to organize itself um, in that environment. So in that sense, uh, it's an argument against an economistic reading because it says, well, the Chartists faced a very similar atomized economy with small workshop and still they were able to kickstart a mass movement. Still there, I think there are two large differences. The first is um, Chartists were operating in an era in which there was no mass franchise yet. Uh, democracy wasn't a general political fact and the fight for the suffrage and the fight for socialism was closely interlinked. Um, that's not the case today because socialist parties can't be the forces of democratization that they were in the 19th century. Secondly, and there I think we're looking at something that's even more contemporary and I think frightening, I do think the forces of desocialization or the pull rather than the push factors, so not just what is keeping people or pushing people out of factories, but what is luring them out of factories and out of parties have become much more powerful today. Uh, whether you're looking at the option of the internet or whether you're looking at all forms of financial self-help, people have all these alternative options on offer today to party or union power, which basically create a, an individualized form of class mobility. So if I have a shot at escaping from my class individually, and I can do the same for my children, why would I try to rise with my class as such? And there, I think we're looking at a form of loneliness and a form of despair that is very much intrinsic to the 21st century, and which I think the left should uh, think very hard about 
Yeah, I'm sorry to um, uh, to sort of individualize it to my own uh, situation, but I just whenever I uh, when I was reading that that uh, Vivek Trevor's final chapter in the book, I couldn't help but thinking about uh, the area where I live. So I live in um, an area of tenement buildings that were all constructed to service the same factory workforce in the 1920s. Um, today, the people who live here are, you know. It's still broadly a working class area, but it's people who work in many, many different workplaces. There's lots of self-employed people here as well. There are quite a few students living here. So it's quite a kind of, in a, in a single residential area, it's quite a good demonstration of that process, which has changed. Most of the people, as I say, here are still wage laborers. Um, they are literally living in well, the same housing conditions, at least as people did a hundred years ago, which is a bit scary. Um, but uh, whereas once, you know, streets and streets of people all shared the same workplace culture, were probably all in the same trade union, probably all, you know, had Christmas parties together, probably knew when everyone's birthdays were, went to the same pubs and working men's clubs and all this kind of stuff. We now, you know, barely know each other. And I suppose that's quite a, a kind of concrete illustration of that change, which is which is taking place in in the workforce. Um, I'm interested in the point you make about uh, the chartists, because when thinking about these problems and what you talk about in re relation to modern social movements in the 21st century, I'm always tempted to do that thing of jumping on. A kind of dodgy analogy with the 19th century and saying to myself well perhaps now the workers movement will as you say look more like it did in the in the 19th century whilst always being aware of course the historical analogies like that rarely pan out um but the, the there is i mean there will be people who challenge this idea of a decline of mass politics by saying but look how many gigantic social movements there are in contemporary politics so in recent years obviously we've had blm um, you know, you've had um, similar kind of movements to that, the kind of new social movements they, they've been called recurring over decades, but also on the right, uh, you've had, well, and just a, just about a few days ago, there was uh, another one of these kind of Bolsonaro supporters charging into government buildings in Brazil, something of a copycat perhaps on so-called Jan 6th in the United States. There's certainly an appearance of mass politics. And actually, if you go back further, these movements are even bigger. So in Britain in 2003, I think the anti-war movement was probably the largest uh, street level mobilizations in, in British history. There's also, there are whole episodes uh, of the last 20 years, which are kind of strangely forgotten uh, in episodes of what might be considered mass politics. So the Arab revolutions in particular were absolutely gigantic mobilizing vast numbers of people but you talk about in your um in your article that these movements tend to take a certain form and you talk about how people kind of swarm uh, how there's a kind of rapid movement from an atomized population sections of it suddenly moving rapidly into kind of collective mobilizations but then they sort of dissipate out again um and don't often don't leave behind any kind of legacy and formal organization um i mean do you think it's perhaps wrong to describe this as a decline of mass politics if there is you know there's still mass engagement of certain sorts and in, in some regards these movements are much larger 
than their equivalents in uh, in the 20th century? I think it's a very important question and one of my tentative attempts to anatomize or analyze what exactly is going on with these new social movements or these 21st century social movements is the concept of hyperpolitics. Um, firstly, what you talked about at the beginning, I do think there are precedents for what we're seeing. And I don't think it's completely wrong that we're seeing some type of reversal or rather a echo of a type of 19th century crowd politics um, whether it's certain forms of bonapartism or rioting, which we've seen before. So it's it's not as if the situation is completely the same, but I'm certainly not opposed to historical comparisons with the 19th century, in which before the advent of social democratic mass party building or even right-wing party building, uh, the main form of social bargaining was just rioting or crowd control. Um, and I think we see elements of that today as well, and someone like Dylan Riley, who's also a very insightful writer on the crisis of civil society, has uh, said that we need to look at the period of Bonapartism in the 1840s and 1850s as a far more apt analog for what we're looking at today. So that is my first argument for precedence. My second argument is more about differences in that I do think that calling those recent social movements mass movements is a highly superficial and I would say almost exclusively quantitative reading. Uh, I'm very much opposed and instinctually averse to readings of social movements that purely look at turnout and how many people are in the streets, how many bodies are moving and extrapolating from that towards certain political forms and therefore mobilizing concepts we mainly know from the 20th century. Um, what is always very striking, no matter how large and numerically powerful these recent movements are, is that their forms of affiliation and the forms of loyalty they stimulate are extremely fleeting and impermanent. And that really makes them extremely 21st century insofar as they're not forms of mass politics, more, more swarm politics in that they can't really organize types of commitment or engagement like they did in the 20th century, but they can stimulate very short-term forms of frenetic activity, which then dissipates afterwards. And you see this very clearly with the BLM protests of the summer of 2020, which were once again, numerically, the largest protests in American history. There never were more Americans on the streets. Um, there's purely in terms of numbers, it not been surpassed either by the riots or the protests of the 1960s or the anti-Iraq protests of the early 2000s. So once again, we're looking at a quantitatively extremely powerful movement. At the same time, the social or political form that movement took is existentially different from what we knew from the era of mass politics in the 1960s. And the comparison I like to make is between the March from Washington in 1963, which was an emblematic moment in post-war civil rights history, and the BLM marches of the summer of 2020. And that if you look at the pictures of the people who marched on Washington in 1963, is that everyone walked down the street with a certain badge or a vest that denoted their specific associational affiliation. Uh, they either came with jackets with union buttons or they had certain stickers that indicated their membership of the NAACP or another black civil rights organization. So, of course, there was a crowd or a mass on the street, but every single one of those individuals had a certain institutional affiliation. I went to Washington as a union member. I went to Washington as a member of the National Association for Colored People. I went to 
Washington as a member of a church, et cetera, et cetera. So even within the mass activity, there was an organizational infrastructure behind it that went beyond that surface level. If you look at the protests in 2020, that was completely different. Uh, people came on the street the way one did, like receiving a message about a party in the evening and going there and then dispersing. People, of course, put black squares on their Instagram profiles, but no one was there with the idea that they're there because they're prior members of a different organization. So some of the organizers might have had NGO affiliations, some of the other people might have interacted in certain subcultures online, but those are completely different institutions from the unions or the, for example, black associations that organized the civil rights marches. And I think that holds for so many of the, the other protests um, we knew from the 2000s and 2010s, whether it's the anti-war protests or whether it's the Arab Spring, you have a massive crowd of people that take to the streets without organizational infrastructure to prop it up. And what ends up in the end is that certain groups of elite can sculpt or mobilize that crowd to their own purpose. And that is, again, I think very different from the 20th century in which uh, mass marches did have this organizational infrastructure from which they were launched rather than just being standalone, impermanent manifestations of discontent. One of the kind of characteristic images of that process you're describing, I mean, you could physically see it on the demonstrations and it was the um, the handwritten signs, you know, whereas perhaps in years gone by, uh, well, you would either have a, an NAACP uh, placard or perhaps in later decades, you know, uh, placards mass produced by small Trotskyist groups to make it look like they had a, an outsized uh, <laughs> uh, presence on a demonstration. Instead, uh, in BLM and some other kind of contemporaneous protest movements, you had these uh, sort of bits of cardboard onto which people had written their own message, uh, often sort of seeking to draw you know attention either to a political slogan or a piece of humor or whatever it was quite a kind of physical demonstration of that for many years i used to get very grumpy with people like john holloway uh, for espousing ideas about you know horizontalism and so on which is often a creed uh, of these sorts of movements and that's a classic getting things back to front you know that's a classic idealist type error um social movements weren't becoming so-called horizontalist because there were people preaching a kind of anarchisty ethos it was just that these movements never created the wherewithal to construct hierarchies and so you have the very strange image of these huge movements which not only don't really generally leave behind organization or when they do the organizations they leave behind are often very weak so i'm thinking for example of podemos out of the squares movement in spain or a, a more farcical example the official blm organization in the united states which is subsequently well appears to be corrupt um but is, in, in any case it's sort of like an ngo shell it's not a kind of genuine mass organization with chapters and mass memberships and votes and and, and, and any of that kind of stuff so really the culture of horizontalism and social movements i think is again it sort of reflects that a, de a deeper structural weakness in our ability to create uh, mass organization. I just wanted to bit just, just lastly bring in a kind of Scottish perspective on this because it helps us, I think, to dovetail how the weakness of civil society or the decline of mass politics, if we want to call it that, has helped issue in new forms of party political organization. I suppose from my point of view, 
this debate makes much more sense of contemporary Scottish politics than many other lenses do. So, for example, the Scottish National Party in Scotland is now the hegemonic political force. It became that, though, because of the rapid decline, or I suppose actually the long-term decline of Labour that became apparent all of a sudden after the 2014 referendum movement, uh, when a hollowed-out Labour Party, which had really lost contact with its traditional working-class communities, suddenly just folded um, you know, like a deck of cards, and gave rise to the SNP, which at first, you know, appeared to demonstrate a revitalization of mass politics. It quite, very quickly put on 100,000 members, which in Scotland, a country of only five and a half million people, is quite remarkable. But since then, I think it's become apparent that this, that a rebirth of mass politics did not ultimately issue of the 2014 movement, which again, had the quality that you described. There was a kind of swarming quality to it. There was a huge amount of self-organized activity for a time. It then entered into very significant decline. There were ups and downs since then. There's been a huge street movement with tens of thousands of people demanding Scottish independence, but it's generally failed to cohere lasting, structured, meaningful organization that can challenge the leadership of the Scottish National um, Party. And so it, it seems to me that there's a, a close relationship between this decline of mass politics and the rise of what some scholars have called techno-populism. Uh, you know, as you said, um, groupings in the elite who are in a position to manipulate populist sensibilities, in large part because these popular mass movements seem, well, either refuse or in, are incapable of developing uh, a coherence and a, and a tight organisational structure of their own. I mean, it, do you think that sounds like, you know, a similar situation as we've seen play out in some larger political contexts? I think it's definitely symbolic for so many other national contexts in which the process of disorganisation has taken off. And so, of course, I can't speak that deeply about the Scottish case, but it sounds extremely representative for many other cases I'm familiar with. Uh, the first thing I'd say once again is that we need to be wary of superficial readings that just look at membership or attendance statistics and that make grand philosophical inferences from those data and say that mass politics has returned. What you also saw with the Corbynite Labour Party is that you had a massive surge in membership as Corbyn was at the head of the party. But it was also very clear that the loyalty of those new members to the party was highly conditional, was very fleeting. And once Corbyn was out of the saddle, um, they immediately withdrew their membership, um, after which Starmer, of course, actively started to push them out. So once again, this is very different from the affiliation that I think working class and labor voters had to the party in the 20th century, whatever its pathologies, in which one was born in labor families in which entire neighborhoods were basically structured around labor as one was with a church. In Belgium, in my own family, this is even more explicit in that if one was born in a Christian democratic Catholic family, there was simply no question that one would not vote for the, Christ, uh, for the Christian Catholic parties. Um, this was an attempt at social suicide, basically, or one had to move out of that neighborhood or cross society in such a dramatic way that many people didn't want to risk that ostracism. And I think there were very 
real equivalents of that even on the left where the communist and the socialist parties built their own secular churches to keep people inside. Now, once again, with the SNP and also with the Corbynite Labour Party, the relationship to the party is very different. Uh, it's a vehicle for a very short-term project. Um, once it's clear that the leader might be able to fulfill that project throughout the party, um, they're willing to lend their support for it. But once that's not the case, they're willing to withdraw it again. So once again, the entry and the exit costs are very low. And I think this is exactly the reason why Miliband also made becoming a member of the Labour Party before Corbyn uh, so much easier. It's a way of making politics cheaper rather than demanding long-term and hard commitment for people. Now, of course, this uh, allows for very easy and swift uh, attempts at conquering uh, certain types of executive power, both within the state and within the party. But it also means that your actual grip or your colonization of the party, I'd say, is very limited. So once Corbyn is away and all those members are still there, it's actually surprisingly easy for Starmer to push them all out um, because... Corbynism's grip on the Labour Party or its attempt to reform that party um, was always fairly limited. And therefore, I think uh, it's not simply a question of how many members a party has, but it is about the structural hierarchies of how a party functions. Um, does it have open primaries? How strong is the basis control over the cadre, etc., etc.? And if there is no clear formalization of that relationship, it's very likely, as you saw with the SNP, but also with many other parties, that the most likely outcome is this techno-populist hybrid in which you have technocrats who use a certain form of populist sentiment to further their own elite projects. Um, so I think we're looking at swarm politics or we're looking at uh, certain uh, forms of fleeting activism. But another very dominant form of politics in that age of disorganization is just a cadre party that relies on crowd activity um, through these techno-populist outreaches. But it doesn't actually build durable party infrastructure either. I kind of want to end by asking how you think this situation pans out. I mean, I, I, I probably, since I first read the literature and then my first reaction to reading your article again was a kind of melancholic one and it's hard not to be nostalgic for an era when there were much larger self-organized democratic uh, forms in society and the building of those seemed to be certainly not easy but you know it was achieved in, in countries around the world i think you made a point earlier though which is uh, quite insightful which is you know it's easy to romanticize civil society but no one harnessed that as successfully as the reactionary right was. And when when there was, mass, in, in, in perhaps the greatest period of peak mass politics in the interwar decades, uh, the left very dramatically lost the mass politics arms race. I mean, by the time um, political forces like the Nazi party came to power in Germany, they had millions of members across multiple sections you know, youth wings, academic fronts, you know, legal fronts, uh, you know, in every organized in every profession and massive paramilitary organizations and, and so on. So, you know, the, the existence of mass politics does not cure what ails you. Uh, I think if you're on the radical left without perhaps predicting the future, how could we imagine a return to a more you know, not to what we had, as it were, in the in the first half of the 20th century, the late 19th century, but to a form of political engagement 
uh, and social engagement, which is more involved, more structured, uh, more engaged, more strategic. Because part of the, the process here is as well, you know, a lot of these mass movements, they don't have much of a perspective for what happens. You know, there's not there's a decline of expectations politically in general uh, and associated perhaps political development. There's not a clear view of a programmatic, as it were, future. Um, there's not a gr an agreed upon goal, but there's also no forums to get towards an agreement on what the goal is. Is there any way, you know, that we can see from where we are right now to a possible future of closer engagement, democratic engagement? I think that's a million dollar question. And unfortunately, I won't be able to supply a very satisfying answer to it. Worried you might um, say that. <laughs> um, I think I would say a couple of few things. I think you're very right that a return to mass politics, certainly in a 20th century form, also carries massive risk, certainly from the left, uh, because the mass politics arms race, as you so nicely called it, was lost by the left and it often benefits the right. And I do think that's also part of the reason why I spent a large part of the Jacobin article discussing why the secular crisis of civil society has also incapacitated or made impossible a return to the forms of ultra-right or fascist politics we're familiar with from the 20th century. So capital's attack or offensive on civil society has also handicapped and kneecapped part of the right, and it makes it far less likely for us to return to the reactionary specters we knew from the previous century. That might be reason for comfort in certain ways, but once again, it comes with a very heavy price, namely that it also implies a neutering or a critical weakening of some of the left-wing oppositional forces we had in the previous century. Um, at the same time, the question is, uh, what do we start from today? Uh, because the crisis we're diagnosing is not simply economic or political one. It's almost a, a form of social anomie that spreads across all different kinds of sectors. And it can seem so holistic and so widespread that there's no way out. And it almost makes you say, well, um, where do you want to go? Well, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. So we're not starting from a position that is any way profitable for what we're trying to do. Nonetheless, and I think this differs on different national cases, there are still forms of civil society organization, or there are still forms of collective life that are there, from which I think you can at least imagine a possible renaissance or a rebirth of a type of mass politics. When you look at, for example, the railroad strikes in the United Kingdom today, or the way the Belgian Union movement has held up in the last 30 years, um, those are some of the last forces that not only give people a sense of the collective dimensions of work, but also the types of commitment that are necessary to have organizations that could pose a durable challenge to capital. Now, they're very weak. Um, and I think as we see with the Enough is Enough campaign, they're also very prone to the type of PR, um, I'd say cheap protest politics, which have ailed us for so long. But I do think they offer a possible launching pad for a type of radical politics that has become infrastructurally much more difficult. We need to be very much aware that, uh, again, civil society romanticism is not going to help us here. Unions are always capable of being highly conservative institutions. They can strike deals with the enemy if that then turn out to be quite calcitrant and that actually block certain types of radical politics. But within the sort of general crisis of engagement and belonging we're facing, I think those are one of the few places you can actually start from.
whatever you want to say about Corbynism or whatever you want to say about the RMT from a British perspective, at least they show that people have an appetite for radical politics and people have an appetite for political activity. And we need to think about what it means to consolidate that or to make that more durable or crystallize it into something that could survive an electoral cycle and that can become more permanent. I mean, I say electoral cycle, but I really just mean media cycle. Because I think the romance with the radical potential of the internet is now fading, or at least a lot of people are realizing that the internet does not have the civic promises or capacity that we thought it had in the 2000s. And once that disillusionment has kicked in, I think there might be some space to think about what types of engagement might be able to give us even a sense or a glimpse of the mass politics we need to pose a durable challenge to capital once again. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot.com.